this is John Sherwood here with johnsherwood.com where we try to fuel faith in the 21st century. And uh, today we have the great pleasure of having a conversation with Ellen Radcliffe. Thank you, Ellen, for joining us here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. Thank you. No problem. So you are um, a full-time licensed counselor and you also are a part of the staff of Strength and Weakness Ministries, which is a ministry designed to help Christians with uh, unwanted same-sex attractions, as well as helping families and other Christians navigate through a very tumultuous sexual landscape and culture. And uh, you are their chief operating officer now, although I understand that you prefer the title and secret deputy director to take after your favorite character, Leslie Nope, and your childhood hero. So I will call you deputy on this call and during this interview. So please, thank you for uh, thank you for giving me that. I'm going to look forward to using that <laughs> from now on. Uh, but thank Perfect. you again so much for taking taking the time tonight. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about just kind of your backstory and uh, sort of your, you know, your history and your bio of how you grew up, how you came to faith and how you ended up intersecting with Strength and Weakness Ministries. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a Christian home, you know, um, for people who use this vernacular. I'm a kingdom kid, right? I'm a preacher's kid. And so I, I genuinely. PK, huh? Wow. That's right. Hmm. Yep. Good old PK. God um, bless I you. actually. Right. It's so hard. Let me say to the fellow PKs out there, it is tough growing up that way. Right. I had someone come up to me when I was probably eight years old after a service. And she said, Ellen, I saw you biting your nails during service and you need to be really careful because other people are watching you. They're learning from you how to be appropriate or whatever. That is way too much pressure to put on a child. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't put that on an adult. If someone came and said that to me now, I might spit that nail in their face. That's, that's right. Yeah. And then be charged with assault and be sued and all that. But um, that's right. Yeah. Well, so, hey, hold on. Let's we can't we can't derail too much from the PK conversation because I'm a preacher. My kids are growing up as PKs. That's right. Tell them don't I, bite their nails, I guess. No. <laughs> Great advice. That's actually that. To, OK, so to be fair, my youngest actually does like chew the ends of his fingers and will like create sores and stuff. And so. Hopefully he doesn't do that in church, but any other kind of golden sage advice that you have for other PKs out there? Oh, I would say, oh, I have this other terrible memory. I went out, we went out to lunch, right? This, the after sermon lunch with all the preachers, right? And all their kids, we were at PF Chang's and all the preacher's kids were sitting at the table and they were like, I I have an idea. Let's go around and share what we want to do when we grow up. And I just so happen to be the first one, right? So they're like, Ellen, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, I want to be a, I don't know what I said, paleontologist, you know, astronaut, something like that. And every single person after me said, I want to go in the ministry like my dad or like my mom. I want to go in the ministry like my parents. I want to go in the ministry like my parents. And like every time they said it, it was like, like more and more pointed, oh, Ellen is, should be full of shame because yes. she does not desire to go into the ministry. So wow. I would say fellow PKs, um, I've also heard PKs say, I'm going into the family business, referring to their parents <laughs> being in the, the ministry. ministry. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. The ministry because their parents are in it. Now I agree it's, it can be a family business, but it's because Jesus was in the ministry. Right. right. Um, right. So yeah, that would be my advice that, hey, the ministry might not be the area of service to God's kingdom that God calls you into, but that is no less, um, you know, uh, glorifying to God, uh, whatever he calls you to. So now let me ask the question that everyone is burning to hear the answer to. 
how many of those kids went into the ministry or are still even interested in Jesus at this time in their life, if you're aware of such statistics? Oh, that last one is a good question. Um, I would say probably half of them have a relationship with God that I know of. There are probably eight kids there. And as far as I know, only one of them has gone into the ministry. Okay, so another statistical analysis I might offer there for PKs is you don't always know what you're going to be when you grow up when you're a kid. So take that for what it's worth. Oh, man, Ellen, thank you. That was a free nugget that had nothing to do with our topic today. (laughs) But thank you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we're going to bring it back now. So tell me a little bit about growing up as a PK and how you eventually got connected to Strength and Weakness and became their chief, chief operating deputy director of all chiefs. That's right. Deputy director. Um, Yeah. So I I grew up in a home where my dad was the traditional stereotypical epitome of what a man is, right? Rough, tough, gruff. And my mom is the opposite, sort of what we would traditionally think of as the stereotype for femininity, gentle, quiet, nurturing. And I am just like my dad in personality and in character, which, you know, is finally something I could say I'm very proud of. But certainly as a young girl with uh, a tender heart, lots of insecurities based on these observations I was making that I wasn't like my mom. I was like my dad, but I was a girl. Um, And so this eventually led me to this very distorted belief that something was wrong with me. I was broken as a woman. And so I grew up feeling like an imposter among women. I grew up in the South too, in North Carolina. So, uh, you know, I had all these other stereotypes of what a Southern Mm -hmm. woman is, and I definitely didn't match up to that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just grew up constantly trying to fit among fellow women, but always feeling like an imposter. And so Eventually this shame turned, you know, insecurity turned into shame, turned into bitterness and hardness and anger, especially directed toward my mom, because Mm. she was just the reminder to me, right? I'm not as I should be. Something's wrong with me. Mm. So when I got into high school, after harboring this shame, you know, my whole life, I met a friend who was a bit more like me. She was passionate, opinionated, and uh, I was just genuinely very purely curious, right? Never really met someone like that. And so I just wanted Mm. to know how can she be like that, but be okay with herself. Mm. Um, And so what started out as this very pure, genuine curiosity, very quickly morphed into enmeshment, emotional enmeshment, and then obsession, eventually manipulation on my part, right? I wanted to be her only friend. I wanted, um, you know, her to get fulfillment from me the same way I got fulfillment from her. And unfortunately, when this level of enmeshment, I would even say idolatry, she became my idol. When that level of idolatry is met, especially in a same-sex friendship among women, it's so easy for physical boundaries to be crossed because for a lot of women, emotional connection precedes physical connection. So once you have this really deep emotional connection, it's really easy to just kind of morph into a physical connection. And so that's exactly what happened. And that's, you know, springboarded me into a life of homosexuality. And I did live as a lesbian for a time. Um, And I would say what, what eventually led me to God is that I started to feel like my life had become this roller coaster, right? Like I I was living for certain moments or certain people or certain things. And, you know, so for example, if I had a concert to attend with friends on Saturday night, that would get me through a few days and then what happened, it would be great. And life would have meaning and purpose. 
and then it would be over and I'd be down in the depths again, right? And so I just lived this way for so long. It felt like searching from person to person, place to place, thing to thing, substance to substance. I moved all the way to Ireland to try to find some sort of fulfillment, identity, purpose, meaning. And I was, I realized everywhere I looked, I, I just felt more depleted, right? The way I describe mm-hmm. it is I was trying to fit earthly shaped things into a God-sized hole in my heart. Nothing was going to fill that void. So, um, you know, eventually I just got so tired that I thought, let me give God another chance, you know, see if I missed something there. And uh, what I found was that, oh, I can have eternal joy and fulfillment. Sure, I'll still have moments of unhappiness and, you know, this life will not be easy necessarily, but I can have this eternal joy that will Mm -hmm. never go away. Um, And so I think that's eventually what led me to God. Hmm. So as you come out of this roller coaster to find uh, a God-shaped um, piece to fit into that God-spaced hole in your heart, you know, you mentioned that obviously you, you would come later to, you know, connect with Strength and Weakness Ministries and kind of make this a part of your ministry and outreach and your connection point to the world. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, you know, you mentioned how um, these cultural markers for gender and for sexuality and for gender roles and manifestation of gender expression, how these markers really negatively and adversely affected you. You grew bitter towards your Southern Belle mom and you you felt isolated by not feeling like you fit in or looking around and not seeing others that were expressing like you. And then when you did, it led you down this path uh, of enmeshment and idolatry and, and kind of this spiritual deprivation, right? And this this fleshly fulfillment. So as I took take a look around the culture today, right? And as I look at the narrative and the worldview that's being propagated and, and instilled and taught at a very young age, uh, even in the part of the country that I'm, I'm in, uh, which is extremely liberal and, and, and um, uh, hyper, um, um, you know, I would say hyper liberal, especially around the realms of sexuality. Um, I hear this narrative that is championing the very thing that you said hurt you, that that we need to blow out gender um, norms and traditional gender expressions and um, that there, there, you know, that gender is obviously this societal construct that needs to be completely fluid. And and, and I'm, I'm wondering what you would have thought at that time in your life if you had this opportunity to hear and embrace that kind of worldview? Well, I think um, if this were happening when I was a teenager, I would certainly be swept up into it for sure. I've often wondered Mm. that. Would I use terms like transgender to describe my experience simply because I was confused about where I fit among women, Mm. right? Not convinced that I didn't belong among women. Mm. Um, But I, I think you're spot on that this is a big thing happening in our society. The way I see it is, you know, um, for the past 50 years or so, we've swung the pendulum too far one way and we've had these really rigid gender stereotypes. And that's part of what, you know, uh, was so harmful to me. What I see now is this big transition where we're swinging the pendulum too far the other way in traditional, you know, human nature. This is what we do. We don't like the middle ground. We like the extremes. 
And so I don't think that's the right answer either. I think the right answer lies somewhere in the middle. God did create a gender binary for a reason. There are differences between men and women, though they're not as rigid as we thought previously, right? Um, but I don't think the answer is to get rid of gender altogether. Certainly mm. that wouldn't be biblical or um, I don't think congruent with God's perspective. And yet I, I see this happening all over the place, right? That there is this cultural pressure that's leading and making inroads towards androgyny, towards a removal of all gender and gender identity. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and some even in uh, transhumanism and things think that that gender will eventually be um, removed, you know, through uh, through medical and, and technological abilities that, that will no longer need the basic reproductive uh, capabilities for right. dif gender differentiation. And so um, with a culture and perhaps a, a, a human species that is perhaps confidently marching towards androgyny, how would you counsel the Christian? in today's world to be able to navigate this not only theologically and spiritually and biblically but perhaps even emotionally and relationally and personally if they are um, walking through this similar types of confusion or uncertainty about where they fit um, and and how does where they fit uh, align or not with the word of god and his principles yeah i would say I like to start where Jesus often did with compassion and empathy, right? We mm. can recognize um, the truth that lies within their struggle, right? So the truth, uh, like we just said, the truth is that's true. We have had some really rigid gender stereotypes and that's mm. not biblical and that is really harmful to people, right? Mm. Um, and so we can definitely acknowledge that. We can definitely sit with people in their pain. Think about how difficult that would be to feel incongruent in your body, right? Mm. That, your, that your gender, one of the most fundamental basic things about us felt off, right? Mm. Um, that would be a terrible, terrible feeling. I feel awful about myself when my pants don't fit right. I can't imagine when you <laughs> feel like your whole body doesn't fit right, right? right. So uh, yeah. we can definitely exude tremendous amounts of compassion and empathy to people who are going through this. And then I think, you know, like you said, if someone has the desire to live for God, What's at the core of our faith, of all of our devotion to God, is that we don't live for ourselves, we live for God. That's what I constantly come back to, right? Mm. And so I think one of the fundamental truths that a lot of, especially, you know, the youth of today who are facing this as the norm have forgotten is that understanding the why of what God asks of us is not a prerequisite for obedience, right? Mm. We obey because we love, right? Mm. Um, not because we agree or we get it or, you know, mm. anything, you know, we're on God's level and we can see it the same way that he does. And so I think that's what I constantly have had to come back to, mm. too, with same-sex attraction specifically, um, that it doesn't matter if I get it. It matters if I've, you know, continue to make that decision to love God before me and then live for him. I can hear the the argument now though right that's that's like nails on a chalkboard you know mm. to to say to love someone more than me especially to love some patriarchal misogynistic homophobic god before me you know like i can hear it now raging in the culture and yet the very thing you're describing is what we do in natural human relationships anyways like for instance you know, my wife and I's anniversary is coming up. 
I found out today it's tomorrow. I always think it's, I always think it's about seven days off. I have the wrong date in my head. These things are very important to my wife. Clearly those types of things are not as important to me. It's very important that she feels celebrated and receive gifts. That is not important to me. If a year were to go by and she completely forgot our anniversary, it would really not affect me negatively. However, because I love her, I forego what I want or what I understand or what I think or what I even connect with, right? I don't need the same things that she does to feel loved, but because I love her, I want to love her above me, even though I might not understand, even though I might not get it. We do this in meaningful relationships with other humans, whether they're friends or family members or loved ones or, you know, uh, romantic relationships. We understand that a part of loving is to put others or put another above ourselves. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to do that with God, especially around the topics of gender and sexuality? Yeah. Well, first I'll just say, I think you're right. We do this with our spouses and our partners. We do it with our children. We do it with friends, even in an unhealthy way, right? I'm a marriage and family therapist associate. I can't tell you how many friends, uh, parents, uh, spouses who have come into my office and said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I, I love them more than I love myself. I put them before me in everything. And I'm thinking, that's noble in a way, but that's super unhealthy. That's enmeshment. That's idolatry. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. This, it, it does. It's like nails on a chalkboard to say that about God, but not necessarily, right. It wouldn't be so abnormal to say, well, you need to love your spouse more than you. Right. Or you need to love right. your partner more than you, even to an unhealthy level, people can swallow that much easier. Right. Why is it so hard with God? I would say, you know, I, I am, often surprised um, about how many people and myself included do not understand the nature of God, right? Mm -hmm. We, we do, like you said, this patriarchal, right? Like we have this very skewed view of who God is and it's in, it's a lot of it is influenced even by the culture and even church culture, which I would say is an imperfect means to understanding a perfect God. We each have to really um, be aggressive and strive to understand God's true nature. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible to love God in the way that he asks us to, if we don't understand who he really is, right. Then Mm -hmm. we're, we're following and loving and obeying this remnant of who God is without the full Mm. picture. So I would say probably if we boiled it all down, it might come down to something like that, but you know, there are other difficulties with it too. We, we can't see God. He doesn't respond to us the same way that a spouse or, you know, a human on earth next to us would. So that complicates it too. But again, understanding his nature helps to assuage some of those things. Yeah. Well, and, and even our best understanding and most aggressive pursual is still only leading us to, um, a fraction of who God really is, you know, his, yeah. his ways are not our ways, his thoughts, not our thoughts so much higher, you know, there, there is a, a very finite limitation to our understanding of God. And, you know, obviously we believe as Christians that God has revealed himself enough for us to be able to understand enough uh, of who he is to be able to have this loving and um, uh, worshiping relationship with him. But even then we, we can never understand God fully. Right. Um, and, and I think that there is something core to that. And I think especially with sexuality and gender, you know, that perhaps 
you know, and I, I don't know if I've if I've read into this, but to me, it's always striking that in the very beginning of the narrative of the Bible, the the first effect that that we see in the garden when man and woman rebel and they take autonomy from this tree of knowledge and good and evil and the first thing that we see is that they realize their nakedness that there was something there was something about sexuality about gender about shame about a, a loss of innocence and freedom to me it seems that maybe the story is get, hinting at something there because um, it's not like you know they all of a sudden realize that the snake was really a demon or they realize that oh this this fruit actually tastes kind of nasty you know like for some reason it says they they realized that they were naked and they felt shame and embarrassment and they hid themselves so i don't know i, I maybe i'm reading into this but I, I just find that there's something so core to our sexuality and our spiritual union with god that when when one is one has gone awry it directly affects the other you know um so as you you know found yourself uh being filled with this god-shaped puzzle piece right in your heart now this this uh you know prodigal daughter of a, of a preacher you know the the <laughs> prodigal pk uh and tell me a little bit about how that then you know transferred into your life now now you are a licensed marriage and family therapist you are married to a man you have a child with another on the way you are uh, you know a chief operating officer of a of a ministry that helps with uh sexuality and gender issues in the christian faith like how did we go from there to there like walk me through that give me the high level <laughs> overview and the, the high points of how how did you get here yeah, well, I think um, quite simply, I fell in love with God, right? Mm -hmm. People often ask me, how can you be married to man to a man if you're attracted to women? And of course, there's a lot of things to go into that. That would take a whole hour to go through my training on female sexuality, right? Female sexuality is very um, fluid and nuanced and things like that. But I would say um, I fell in love with my husband, right? Uh, I would never trade, I've had relationships with women. I would never trade what I have with my husband for a relationship with a woman simply because I feel more physically attracted to her. And in the same way, I feel this, you know, the same way, but more with God, I fell in love with God. Nothing mm. can compare. I think we've all been through this with our mm. own, you know, um, sin of choice, right? Mm. Nothing can compare when we are in deep, intimate relationship with God, nothing can compare to that, not even the sin that got us through so many dark times. And mm -hmm. I think there's, there's something to that as well. And, um, you know, we talk about this a lot in strength and weakness that we need to understand, have that compassion and empathy for people who turn to things like homosexuality for fulfillment, right? They mm -hmm. also have a God-shaped hole in their heart that they're trying to right. fulfill, just like we all have. We've right. all turned to different things that are equally sinful, right? right. Equally harmful to us and to God. Um, and right. so for that, we can definitely have compassion and empathy. But our, our job is not to force people to change their behavior, right? Don't sleep with men, don't sleep with women. Our job is to help steward people's hearts toward God. And the way mm -hmm. we do that is to help them fall in love with him. That is what changed my heart and my life. Mm -hmm. That's what's changed, you know, uh, all the, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I've never heard anything different than that.
You know, I think about um, something I've heard Guy Hammond say, who's the founder and president of Strength and Weakness. He said, you know, it's not that I was so unhappy living a homosexual lifestyle. It's that Jesus ended up being so much better. And I think, you know, the way you just put it is that we don't need to like be all into behavior modification and stop doing this, start doing that. And obviously, I think historically in the West, homosexuality has been that scarlet letter sin um, that the church has really collided with the world and and um, and really in some ways catalyzed the sexual revolution through the mid 20th century in America. But, um, you know, I think this idea that we're stewarding people's hearts back to God. I love the way you put that, you know, that it's not just us trying to identify their most blaring, obvious, you know, bright shining sin and say, stop doing that, you know, nan and the boo boo. Because, uh, right. you know, obviously that doesn't work. It didn't, none of that would work for us either, you know, yeah. but rather to, to steward people's hearts to God and to help them to fall in love with their creator who loved them first. And I know for me, right, my, my drug and sin of choice or, or drugs and sins of choice, because there were many, um, mm-hmm. I, I experienced the same thing, even though it wasn't necessarily in a homosexual vein, it was still the fact that I fell in love with something and someone who was greater than any of those things that did get me through. They did help numb out the pain. They did help me endure the the abuse and, you know, the these things do have temporary effect right they work or else we wouldn't do them right the problem is they're just very short-lived and then you know we stumble upon this eternal natured god that says i can love you perfectly forever and we you know we just fall on our face and go i give all to you it's so encouraging to know and believe and even see that people no matter what they're background, their sin of choice or whatever, that that God can reach in to a person's heart, no matter the situation, you know, I think for some, like, because of maybe this cultural stigma around, you know, homosexuality historically, and now probably moving more towards transgender, um, you know, natured issues and gender binaryism, I think, I think many Christians are going to struggle to believe that God could reach in and change someone's heart, right? And obviously every individual has a part to play in that too right like god gives us free will and he doesn't override us um but maybe you can talk about that for a moment what would you say to maybe encourage um and to instill faith in christians to believe that god can really change their you know family member or their co-worker or their neighbor or their their son or daughter who is struggling with or identifying as something that is on this sexual and gender spectrum that is contrary to God's design. What would you say to instill faith in them? Yeah, well, I often say to parents, and, you know, this could definitely apply to a a friend or a family member of someone going through either some sort of LGBTQ plus, you know, uh, issue in their life, that um, I just, rec- you know, asked them to recall their own journey to God, right? Uh, it was real bumpy. <laughs> Mine was, right? right? It was filled with, um, you know, falling down and getting back up. It was filled with heartache and pain. And I still carry emotional, mm. spiritual, even physical scars from my time living apart from God. Mm. But I don't think I would have come to God had it not been for some of those bumps, right? Mm. I never would have recognized my need for him. And so, you know, I always encourage, especially 
especially parents of children, that uh, your your child is on the path to God. They're not at the end of it, right? Our whole life mm-hmm. essentially is a journey That's to right. God, hopefully right. closer and closer, right? And so I just ask people to zoom out a little bit, right? I love mm-hmm. Colossians 3, 3, that we, we set our heart on things above. We look at things through God's perspective. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, that can quell our fear a little bit as we remember, mm-hmm. okay, God loves my child, my friend, my loved one more than I do. Mm-hmm. He's working even harder than I am continually knocking on the door Mm. of their heart and they're not at the end of their journey and neither am I, right? We're Mm. all on this journey to understand God better and hopefully love him, you know, more fully Mm -hmm. and understand his love more fully. But yeah, that's what I say is that, um, you know, I I could tell you about so many stories about people coming to God and, you know, miracles about people changing their life because of their recognition of God's love for them. But essentially I think it boils down to zooming out, looking at this through God's perspective and placing the burden on him where it belongs Mm. instead of taking that from him and saying, it's mm. my job to make their behavior comply. Mm. It's, it's our job to love them and to be used by God when we're called in whatever way he calls us to. Um, but it's not our job to make our children or make our loved ones fall in love with God. God's got right. that. It's our job to model, to love, to obey and to steward. So what would you say to parents or maybe grandparents of young children growing up in the Western culture today, and how maybe some tips on how to steward their hearts towards God, especially when they are being inundated with these worldviews, with these paradigms, and with um, very clear teachings that are counter to the paradigms and worldviews of the Creator Yahweh. Um, for me, I'm a I'm a dad of young children. Uh, we wrestled a lot with the public education system and the paradigms that are instilled through that. Is that something we want to, uh, you know, subject our children to? We don't want to be improperly uh, avoidant or trying to shelter our children in an unhealthy way. And at the same time, we don't want to, in an improper way, just, you know, throw off all restraint and just kind of feed them to the wolves, if you will. And so I, I think that for many this is becoming a more difficult and unclear landscape to traverse as the culture becomes more and more clearly post-Christian, which I don't like that term personally just because it presumes or at least, you know, assumes this idea that this culture was Christian before, which I have major issues with. But nonetheless, (laughs) it is at least becoming clearly not Christian. Maybe there was kind of a facade there before, and so how do we navigate in the world, but not of the world? What advice would you give to uh, parents and grandparents, maybe of, of young children or, or, or young, uh, you know, teenage children, this kind of thing, who are trying to, to navigate through this in the midst of uh, a generation that's trying to pass on their faith and to instill and steward their hearts toward this, this God that we have all fallen in love with? Yeah, well, I would say I have a, a series of, you know, trainings on this on my website, heartsetabove.com, um, specifically for parents of young children, because this is a growing question that we're getting. How do I help my young children? Because they are learning about this in school and from their peers on TV, everywhere they look, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, so let's talk about the school issue, and maybe we can extrapolate that to this question overall. 
I get asked this question a lot. Should I pull my kids out of public school, right? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there. I think uh, what would be unwise is to leave your kids in public school and not train them in the way they should go, not actively, intentionally talk to them about what they're learning and, you know, instill in them a godly foundation. I also think it would be unwise to pull them out and not talk to them and instill a godly foundation in them, right? right? right. Either way, um, right. if we throw them to the wolves, like you said, right, and we don't instill that godly foundation, then they are more so shaped by their culture than they will be already, right? All right. of us are shaped by our right. culture, but they will be more susceptible to that. If we pull them out and don't give them that godly foundation, we're telling them us, it's us versus them. They're unsafe. Right. We're safe. Right. And that is not the message of God or Jesus at all. Right. Um, and so right. I think what we need, so the advice I give to parents is a couple of things. One, have family devotionals, right? Mm. Somehow we've gotten out of the habit of this in our church mm. culture, I think. Um, and family devotionals for me growing up were very multifaceted. They were fun. They bred, you know, identity and connection in our family, mm. but they also served as the time for us to talk about really real life stuff that was difficult mm. to talk about, right? Things like if I was growing up now, we'd be talking about homosexuality and transgender, right? Mm. And we would be talking about both sides. What does God say about it on a righteousness perspective? And what does he say about it on a love perspective? Right. Mm. And then my parents would have walked through with us. Let's act this out. Let's pretend mm. that you're at school and there's a little boy dressed as a girl and everyone's whispering about him and not talking to him. Right. What would you do? You would mm. go over there and talk to him and be his friend. That's exactly what Jesus would do. Right. So mm. we are not going to treat them any differently. We're still going to love them. And some people live differently than we do. And that's okay. This is how we live because we live for God, right? That doesn't make us better or them worse. It just means that we live differently. We can still love them and treat them with respect and kindness and dignity. Um, mm. And so these kinds of conversations need to be happening in homes with young mm. children, especially. Right. I would say also utilize those car rides. And mm. when you're walking with your kid down the road, right? Use that time when mm. you uh, watch a TV show and see two men kissing or two women kissing stop, talk to your child about it. Then don't just bury your head in the sand and hope that they didn't notice. They did. They need <laughs> right. your direction, right? right? They need your help right. to contextualize this in a godly lens. Sometimes right. this is too daunting for parents to do right away. Sometimes mm. they have to confront some of their own biases mm. and pain and wounds from around this topic before mm. they they can meet their kids' needs in that. And so if that's the case, do that so that you can be there for your children um, in these conversations. So I would say have these conversations and then help your kids find the middle ground between love and righteousness. God upholds both perfectly. And though we can't, that is what we're striving towards. So yeah, we do need to be radical about the way that we live righteously for God. We also need to be radical and even scandalous like Jesus was with the love that we offer to people that don't don't live the way that mm. we do. So this reminds me of Deuteronomy, right? Where God instructs his people to write their commands, his commands, you know, on their doorposts and to talk about them when they're on the road and to, to share yeah. with their children. And this has always been the motif of God's people, right? Is that we find a way to live differently in whatever context we find ourselves in, right? Whether we're being oppressed and enslaved by Egypt, whether we're, you know, being oppressed and enslaved by Rome, whether we are the, the predominant culture, you know, like wherever we find ourselves, we're called to live differently under this different king. 
And that happens personally and individually, and also it spreads out corporately and through our families. So what you said, though, made me think of something. It, it, you know, this idea that you said, okay, we need to instill and have conversations and, and not just, you know, kind of bury our head in the sand. We might have to deal with some of our own wounds, issues, biases, and things like this. Um, what kind of, um, geez, I totally lost what I was going to say. <laughs> what was the last thing that you just said? I wish I could rewind right now. Uh, utilizing, yeah, things that happen in everyday life to talk to our kids about. We got to provide the foundation. We have to uh, strive to uphold righteousness and love. Oh yes, that's it right there. Yeah, yeah, righteousness and love. That that dichotomy. Okay. Okay. So, Ellen. So, what would you say though when people are struggling with? how do i love someone and yet not have that love appear like i'm condoning or endorsing their unrighteous life right whether that's practically you know do i attend um, my friend or family member's homosexual wedding or what does it mean to teach my child to go up to um the the child who's intentionally cross-dressing or who is um, expressing as an opposite gender or no gender or whatever, like how do we love and yet still have some sort of boundary or understanding of righteousness? How does how does love not become um, approval? Right. I think about this is a, co a constant question that I get in my role. Right. Like, how do I love like Jesus, but not approve of people's sin? Because he so deftly, I'm thinking about, right, the woman caught in adultery. He so deftly does both, right? He says, hey, yeah. the first among you, you know, be the first to throw the stone that, that is without sin. And then he says, where are your accusers, woman? Get up and leave your life of sin. Like, I don't accuse you, but yet I don't approve either. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, that's just so brilliant. And I, I look at that and I go, I, I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just this yeah. whole nother level of Jesus who came in grace and truth. And so what kind of advice might you give for how a Christian can be full of grace and truth in some of these practical matters, whether with their children or grandchildren or their friends or coworkers, how can we love people and yet also be the salt and light that stands for the truth of God? Yeah, well, you know, this is a question I get asked all the time, too, and it's a very abstract question. It's hard to to list all of the, you know, millions of things that fall under love and millions of things that fall under righteousness in our modern world. I think I'm very grateful that we have a really clear um, example model of this, like you mentioned in Jesus, right? The woman mm -hmm. caught in adultery, certainly many other times. I think about Luke 15, right? It mm -hmm. talks about how the people who would have been considered the untouchables, like totally cast out from society, Luke 15 says that they gathered around Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't go chase them down. They were gathering right. around him. I can't imagine that they would want to hear what he had to say or that they would willingly gather around this rabbi unless they first felt such incredible love, warmth, acceptance. And so I think I'm glad you mentioned the word approval. There's a big difference between acceptance and approval. Certainly God, or certainly Jesus did not approve of the lifestyle, you know, all the ways that those untouchables were living, but he wholeheartedly, unconditionally accepted them 
for who, for how they were, who they were in that mm-hmm. moment, right? Even though he didn't approve of the way that they were living. I think we can have the same heart. If I unconditionally accept someone, no matter what, even though I don't personally approve of their lifestyle, um, it's much easier to freely give my love to them mm-hmm. and freely talk about my devotion to my personal devotion to righteousness and to God. Mm-hmm. I think too, another you know piece of that is that you know, continually striving toward that mindset that it is not our job to change people's behavior. Mm. That will come from a heart level change that God will do sometimes using us as his vessel in that person's Mm. life and sometimes using other things. Right. And so when we're, when our focus comes off the behavior and goes to the heart, Mm. I think it's probably a, um, people are a lot closer to God than we realize if we're just Mm. focusing on the behavior. But I would say too, uh, you know, Jesus was a man of great vulnerability and it is hard to um, offend someone when you are approaching them with like incredible amounts of vulnerability and humility, Mm. right? If Mm. you are like, Hey, I am no better. Mm. (laughs) I am just as sinful. I just Mm. happen to live for God. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm any better or less sinful than you are. Right. I Mm. know what you're going through, right? If we have that level of vulnerability, camaraderie, humility, it's Mm. hard for anyone to be offended when we Mm. say, Oh, well, that's not how I live but I love you. And I, you know, I'm glad that you're happy. I have a, I have a way that you could be even happier probably, but whether you choose that or not, I still love you. And I think no less of you. Right. So what about the prophetic voice, right? What about the idea of, um, you know, Paul put it this way. He said that, you know, because we know what it is to fear God, we try to persuade people where, where is the, um, space or the context in our culture for there to be a prophetic persuasive voice that is trying to implore people to be reconciled to God um, while we are loving them right and I, and we see this in Jesus of course right he he loves them and yet he's imploring people on God's behalf be reconciled to God even to the point where he's willing to lay down his own life as we are called to follow him as well. But what would that look like today, do you think, around these issues? What would it look like to have a prophetic or an imploring, you know, voice and relationship and context in today's culture? What what might that look like or what have you experienced where a Christian can feel emboldened to love and to implore? Yeah, you know what's coming up in my mind right now is the story of Hosea. There's this great, um, it's called I think like the a modern depiction of Hosea or something like that, that this church did. And um, so if we think about like the way that God refers to us as his children, as his bride, if, if my, you know, if I ran away from my home and, you know, my best friend came and said, Ellen, please go back to your husband. He's in pain. He's hurting, right? He is so desperate to have you back, to know that you're safe, to know, you know, to have, you know, how much he loves you, right? Um, that's a really different level of imploring than how dare you run away from your home, right? You better right. get your butt back there and, right. you know, live up to the duties that you agreed to, right? right. Uh, he loves you so much and how dare you not reciprocate that love, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. It's a lot different to say, wow, you must've been really hurting to run away, but please, all he wants to do is love you fully. Mm. Right. Same with my child. Right. So if we have 
that mindset of how God sees people. That's what I, you know, pray for in my own heart a lot. What I encourage people to do a lot, look at people through the eyes of God. That's his child, his beloved mm-hmm. son or daughter, his bride, right? That he's longing to be reconciled with. If that's our mindset, then, you know, I'm fully convinced this has to start for us on a heart level, not mm-hmm. on a words level, which is where we sometimes go. What are the words I should say to someone to mm-hmm. let them know that I love them, but I'm committed to righteousness that I'm imploring them, but in a loving way, right? Mm. I think we have to start on a heart level. If our heart is you're God's child and he wants you back so much, he knows how hurting, how hurt you are. He Mm. knows how to heal you as much as you Mm. can be healed this side of heaven. Mm. Please give him a chance. That's a lot different Mm. than traditionally what we've seen from Christians imploring people Mm. or, you know, condemning people Mm. who aren't living the way that God would want them to. You know, that's that's great because I think what it does is it turns the onus back to us, right? That by us becoming like Jesus, it will naturally produce Jesus-like interactions and relationships, yeah. and it will produce the words to say when our hearts and our minds are being transformed more into his likeness. And I think mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it can be so easy to look for the little trick, right? The, the tip of the trade, you know, and the, the little um, formula that will help us know how to interact with some situation or person that we're uncomfortable with. And we don't know how to yeah. be like Jesus with rather than going, God, help me become like you and trust that that will really take care of everything else right that as i become more like jesus um i can kind of let go of any formulas or tips and tricks or one-liners or whatever because um i I, I can trust that as i become cruciformed more into the likeness of jesus then i will become more like jesus to other people and obviously as you said i mean and for each of us right like we are so impressed by Jesus. You know, we have found a better way and um, the truth, you know, and something that is greater than all of our sin and idolatry and things that ultimately lead to our own detriment. Um, You know, that's a really great call to mind to just focus on seeing as God sees and becoming more like Mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, So, if somebody wanted to, um, you know, look into these topics further, if they wanted to find out some more resources, what would you point them to? What would you recommend uh, to the people who are maybe just kind of getting uh, involved in this, you know, uh, whether it's to a parent or to a young person who's maybe wrestling with some of these things themselves and everything in between, whatever, like, what are some of the top resources you would recommend? Yeah, well, uh, obviously, I would say check out Strength and Weakness if you are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity issues. If you're a parent who has a child who's going through that or a, a friend, a sibling, a loved one of someone who's going through that, definitely check out Strength and Weakness. Probably the best resource we offer is our support groups, um, mm-hmm. you know, just peer support groups where you can be seen, heard, understood, validated in what you're feeling, and even get guidance from people who have been through some really similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, Guy just wrote this new book, Gay and Christian, if you are not necessarily dealing with this, but, you know, just have some theological questions about that, I would, you mm-hmm. know, definitely point you to that. That will walk you through every pro-gay art 
argument and what the Bible says about it. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, there are a couple chapters in the back about transgender that I wrote and some, you know, frequently asked questions about strength, about same-sex attraction and gender identity um, that I would point anyone to who just wants to generally learn more about this. I also have a website called heartsetabove.com uh, where I have some trainings there and then I offer one-on-one -on -one consultations to people who are wrestling through gender identity or sexual identity, uh, mm. either in their own life or the life of, life of a loved one. So those are, you know, the top two re resources I would point someone to. There's lots of other great ones on there too on my website. Mm. I have a resources page and it lists like a bunch of resources for every different nuanced question within this big umbrella. So um, you can check Fantastic. that out for even more. Fantastic. Ellen, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. And I pray that God will just continue to pour grace out and help you and your family and your ministry to be effective for His glory. And I look forward to being able to do this again soon. Thanks so much, John.